Testament before um, looking at our text in the New. It's important to me as a church that we keep Scripture in mind that way, that when we're particularly, as we often are in the New Testament, and as we've been in for a while, that we see and receive the words and the events of the New Testament narrative in the context of Old Testament that we probably wouldn't be as familiar with. There were a lot of spots that I could have gone this Sunday, but having Sophia read from Exodus 24 uh, might have seemed a little new. Because if you caught it, or if you just were listening and it was like, oh yeah, blood and covenant and stuff like that, I'm not sure if you entirely heard exactly what happened with the blood in the passage that Sophia read, but she literally said that Moses took some of the blood and threw it on people. Did you catch that in the reading? That's literally what Moses did. Something about the blood was so significant that it needed to sanctify other things. But then as well, it needed to land on the people of God. Now, we have had questions about what's the best way to do communion. (laughs) This has never been an option that the elders have considered, probably will never be an option that we consider. If we should ever choose to have people come out of their seats and come up to, uh, you know, something up front where we were sharing either from a common cup, uh, which would be a little new for us, or from where we're coming all to a common stand in order to get cups. Or if we went back to the way that we did during COVID, where everything was prepackaged, you just grabbed one on the way in. There were a lot of different reasons for a lot of the different strategies that we've had over the years. But this one is different. And I don't know what it was like for the folks when the blood was actually splashed on them, But if I were to take my water bottle and just say, hey, Bob, how we doing? (laughs) How do you feel about that? How does Bob feel about that? Bob, I'm so sorry that you just got wet, but that's nothing. Now, Bob is going to remember this sermon a little bit more than the rest of you, I believe. And I'll probably remember whenever Bob gets me back for whatever I just did to Bob. But there's something about the tangible expression, and maybe this wasn't enough of an illustration, maybe, no, I'm just kidding, Kirsten, don't worry. She was locked in, and she was like, oh, don't you dare. Bob and I can handle this. Kirsten and I are still getting to know each other, so I don't think that would work well. I have no idea how the people responded. When Moses took a big basin full of blood and tossed it on the people, they're then splashed with blood. This is the kind of movie I don't watch. Because I don't want to see people die, blood splatters, and all of that. But I am concerned that we have so sanctified communion. We have so prettied up elements of what it meant for animals to be slaughtered, blood to be drained, and then blood to be applied. That if somebody who wasn't a Christian walked into our setting and heard us talking the way we talk about blood, they would think we were pagans. They seriously would. We have factions of Christians that try to understand what is it is actually meant when Jesus said, this is my body. One of the pastors that I respect the most in our region uh, regularly lets me know that he would, you know, love to debate me on sacramentalism because he thinks that we as Protestants are a little bit too loosey-goosey with things. That when Jesus said, 
this is my body and this is my blood. And when Luther held tightly to those words and said, no, we're not Catholic, but we're not going to go the way that Calvin and Zwingli and all these others are going. We're going to remember that this blood matters. It's one of those things that after a little while, we get uncomfortable with it, right? Because Bob, you're drying off a little bit. Doing okay? Not if it were blood. The doctors could probably talk to us a little bit more about what this would be like. Blood is messy and gross. In a TMI illustration, I woke up with a bloody nose this morning. And I decided for your sake to clean it up because I thought that might be a little bit inappropriate if I were to allow that evidence to just kind of be with us this morning. Blood's that way. It's just not something we like to think about. But you know what's interesting? That's not the main point of the passage we're about to look at. It's the main point of the passage that Lenny read is that this blood of the covenant was going to make a difference. But Matthew, Luke, John, they go into more detail. Mark, as he often does, our immediately author, right? Our let's get to it, let's move, detail. We're going to get from this point to that point. Isn't there more questions you have? Yeah, too bad, we're just moving on. We're moving on, we're moving on. Mark is moving on through the Lord's Supper, but he focuses on something different. In the text all around what Lenny read here in chapter 14, Mark focuses not so much on the Lord's Supper, he focuses on those that would be taking the Lord's Supper. And in fact, Jesus makes predictions all around this text. He makes four of them, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But even with that, there's moments whenever I've done weddings that I've been challenged a little bit afterwards because it'd be nice if doing a wedding, all that I needed to do was to come up and say, I remember doing Mike and Sophia's wedding. Being able to say, oh, Mike is just par excellence, the best man ever. Sophia is the most beautiful, godly woman ever, and there's just no problems this couple will ever endure. But that's not the way that Mike and Sophia actually wanted me to be able to introduce their wedding. Don did it. We did the premarital counseling together. But the task they gave me before the wedding was to come up and introduce their flaws, I got challenged a little bit afterwards, and we had a few versions of how many flaws to reveal at the wedding that, the, that went through a couple draft versions of it. But what Mike and Sophia wanted to make aware, make everybody else aware of, make known to everyone, was the fact that they were approaching this as sinners in need of mercy and in need of grace. And in fact, in every wedding that I've performed, that's been one of the main points of the homily. You're going to make pledges that you will break. Not with affairs, not with infidelity and adultery. But you're about to make vows that you can't keep. You don't have the strength to perform what you've promised. You will fail. You'll need mercy and strength from God, and you will need mercy and grace from each other. And that's always an odd point to add in. It feels as though I'm, I'm just demolishing the vows that are about to be taken. But there's a certain sense that what Jesus is about to do with his disciples is like a pastor telling a, a, a group or a, a couple before he's going to marry them. Now, I want you to know you're going to get divorced, but it'll be okay. God's there. 
or a speaker talking to graduates and saying, I want you all to know you're going to be horribly unemployed and you're going to be living on the streets, but it's okay. It'll work out. It's not the kind of thing you'd expect, but in the last words that Jesus has for his disciples, he gives that kind of news. And it's very difficult for them to receive, but the fact that he gives it the way they receive it has real bearing on our lives as well. Because we have to admit, if those who live face to face with Jesus, those who would later be at Pentecost and receive the Holy Spirit in a tangible way, if they would fail, might we? If those who had been with Jesus would fall away, might we? If we just looked at your last week, have you? Because if your confidence has to be in your own performance, just like it's the confidence that the disciples had moving into this tragic night would be in their own strength or their own performance, there would be no hope for the Christian faith. But what Jesus points to in the midst of these predictions is that the hope for Christianity rests on him and not on Christians. So let's look at those predictions one more time. Let's read them here together. We're going to back up a little bit. Lenny read a little later on in uh, chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 12. First prediction Jesus makes, beginning in this section of, of Mark 14, is that a man will meet them. Here's how it comes out. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Verse 16, And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. First prediction that Jesus makes is that those he has a job to do will have all the stuff they need to do that job. Some come and say, Jesus, we need to know, how is this, going, this Passover going to work? And the Passover, which led into the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, sometimes referred to as Passover for one day, sometimes referred to as Passover for the entire eight days, sometimes referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the entire eight days. It's sort of a season, and it's called by different names. Mark is using the phrase unleavened bread, and he's referring to Passover. Historically, we know what we're talking about. We're talking about the Israelites' flight out of Egypt the fact that 12 plagues led to the death of a firstborn and that the way that they would be okay is if they applied blood to their doorposts so that God would pass over, protect them, while the rest of the Egyptians were penalized. But that was going to happen so quickly that they wouldn't have time to bake bread that would be allowed to rise, so they had to forgo the whole like rising, proving process, bake the bread exactly the way it was, and so to remember that hurried flight, there was a Passover celebration, and there was a feast where you only ate bread without yeast. This matzah is what it's become. And so then they were to commemorate both the salvation and the flight and their freedom from Egypt. That's what this feast commemorated. And so because the, we've seen the disciples and Jesus celebrate a bunch of other feasts, they ask, where are we doing this? 
We've made our way into Jerusalem. We've made our way into Jerusalem for this feast. That's what we started with, with the triumphal entry. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. We had all that went on there. Jesus cursed the temple. We then had his teaching and the questioning about that, where he said, this fig tree that I've cursed is now cursed. That's because the temple is now cursed. And then he talks through what that's going to be. We've arrived here. He's just anointed. And now, how are you going to have us prepare this Passover? What does Jesus tell them? You're going to do the work, but I've prepared what you need. Listen to the way that Donald English describes this. It says, the disciples ask where they may prepare the Passover. The answer appears to be accounted for in terms of Jesus having made a prior arrangement. But Mark intends something more impressive than this. Perhaps something along the lines of 1 Samuel 10. The master is fully in control, even of what is, what is to them yet unknown. Do you know that story in 1 Samuel chapter 10? Remember, the beginning of Samuel transitions from the period of the judges, when there's no king and everybody's doing things in their own eyes and life is chaotic, to the time when Saul will be anointed king. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, is the anointing of Saul by Sam, or the anoint, yes, the anointing of Saul by Samuel before the presentation of Saul as the king to everyone. And in that moment, after he anoints him, he, Samuel tells Saul, after you leave here, this will happen. After you leave there, this will happen. After you leave here, this will happen. And after you leave here, this will happen. The language is very similar. That's what this commentator was pointing out. It's not just that the disciples are coming to Jesus and asking, you've obviously made some arrangements. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, oh yeah, there's this guy. Follow him. That'll take you to the house. I've already worked out all the details. That doesn't feel exactly like the arrangement. This isn't just giving knowledge of plans that Jesus made and then making it, woo, look like a prediction. This certainly feels like in the same language of 1 Samuel chapter 10, Jesus is saying, this is going to work out. Here's how it's going to work out. When you walk out there, you're going to see a guy. The guy's going to be carrying a jar of water. That guy's going to go into a house. You're going to follow him. You're going to go into the house and everything will be prepared for us there. They're going to have a large upper room. It's going to be furnished with everything you need. That's where I want you to set it up. Now, a simple little prediction, right? Interestingly, there seems to be more details about where they're going to meet in Mark than there is about the actual feast and what goes on when they meet. John tells us all about Jesus' teachings during that time. He tells us all about the foot washing before that time. He tells us all about what happened during that time. Mark, blah, 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 blah. He gives us more data about the fact that Jesus knew how to get there in a way that seemed predictive and prophetic. Why? Well, 2,000 years later, I think there's some significance for us because there's so many things God's called us to do. And so many times we feel ill-equipped. We can feel like these two saying, God, I know there's something you have for me. I have a question about how this is going to work, and I really don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Seeing that Jesus is able to tell his disciples on the most significant night he's about to endure, hey, I've got this, I've already foreseen it. This is where you're going to go, and this is where you will get what you need in order to serve me the way I've called you to serve me. I think that is a wonderful paradigm for us. Sue described last week, I don't know how we're going to care for mom. He's got it. It's okay. 
Mom, you may be feeling like, I don't know how to care for my little ones. He's got it. It's okay. And it's not just that he's made arrangements and he hasn't told you yet. It's more than that. It's that there are things prepared for you before time. You haven't yet walked into, but Jesus has foreseen them. And he knows that for everything we're called to do, he's already got the supplies all set up. These are encouraging moments for us as we enter into things that are, you know, unknown. Where will we get what we need in order to serve you like you've called? A moment like this reminds us, Jesus has got it. You're going to be okay. I don't think that's the only reason, though. This is a neutral prediction. It's a prediction without morality, heroes, or villains. That's not the next prediction. Here's the next one. When it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, next prediction, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it's one of the 12, giving us an indication there are others in the room with Jesus, not just the 12. Otherwise, if I were to count all of you and say, hey, one of you is going to do this. And you said, is it I? And I told you, well, you know, there's 86 in you. It's one of the 86. That wouldn't really be all that helpful, would it? No, instead, he says, it's, uh, it's not you, it's not you. It's one of you. He's narrowed down. One of my closest companions will be the one to betray me. Now, why is the first prediction helpful? Because if the first prediction came true, what does it say about the second prediction? This will likely come true as well. The first one's almost... It seems to be the way Mark's using it, a setup. Can we trust that what Jesus has foreseen is going to happen? Yes. Is everybody okay with that? Yeah, that was a pretty good little parlor trick, Jesus. Good job. Great. Now we're going to deal about your fidelity. One of you is going to betray me to the enemies unto my death, which I've predicted. And he said to them, it's one of the 12 who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson about this. Said Jesus is the example par excellence of the man who believes that he can never sin his way out of the grace of God. We should remember him if we ever think we can decide the point at which we will stop sinning. Sin deceives as well as hardens and leads us to that hardness of heart and blindness of understanding which ignores the last amber light. Ultimately, even the warnings of the Son of God through his word are silenced. If we yield to sin, it masters us. And we are no longer free or able to choose the moment when we will engage in a mutiny of grace and overthrow its influence on us. Jesus realized, sorry, Judas realized that when it was too late. At first, he would not repent. Eventually, he could not. You remember the immediate context right before this? It wasn't just the anointing of Jesus. It was the betrayal by Judas. 
Mary is going to, or as Mark calls her, the woman is going to give up an untold fortune in order to be able to say, you are worth this, Jesus. Judas will give up Jesus for a far lesser amount. Verses 10 and 11 show that Judas had before this gone and conspired that for me, he would betray Jesus. Jesus is pointing that out here. What happened to Judas? The best a Christian today can do is to answer, to answer speculatively, but I don't think our best bet is to try and figure out or diagnose Judas. Let's just let him be a warning to us. We are all too familiar with what it's like to cater to sin, to coddle it, to maybe not announce it through the front door, but to leave the back door open just so it can sneak in and out whenever it needs to. But all the while, we think, if it gets too cold, or if this gets too destructive, or if sin starts taking too much, I can always shut the back door. But that's not the way it works. Sin isn't like an animal that makes its way in and out that we can, it's more like the encroach of the desert upon the house. Leave the door open. It blows in a little bit. It blows in a little bit more. All of a sudden, the sand moves away more and more and more to the point that you can't shut the door anymore. He says, at first, Judas, sorry, Judas realized this when it was too late. At first, he would not repent. Eventually, he could not repent. What happens to the believer when he stops believing? What happens to the follower when he stops following? What happens to the Christian when he stops being like Christ? God, in giving us scripture, is very content to reassure us that he's the one who draws, who makes grace and repentance possible, and he is also the one who warns us with what happens if we do not accept that grace. Judas is a portrait of that. And if Jesus was right about how the room would be prepared, then he's right about the vulnerability of the human heart, even in those that have followed Jesus for years. That's why we read, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. I'm not particularly worried about becoming an alcoholic. Not particularly worried about being a gambler. I'm more particularly worried about lust. I'm more particularly worried about twisting the truth so that people think good things about me. I'm more prone to becoming a pornographer and a liar than a gambler and an alcoholic. And so I'm vigilant in some areas. And I want never to lose that vigilance in the areas of weakness. But I don't want to ever say, oh, the grace of God in my life. I could never go there. I could never go here. Augustine called it the seed of every sin is in every human heart. So would I ever be 
Judas? If you answer that question, no, I think we're missing the power of this prediction. Not just in their lives, but in the lives of us who, if we take grace for granted, can stray and fall and find that we can never get up. And if we want to give Jesus the prophetic power that it seems Mark is trying to give him, then we need to be careful. Now, I have to warn you guys at this point, the next three sermons are going to be very dark. This is one of them. But what follows and what we're going to look at on the 26th and on the 2nd and then on Good Friday are all very dark. And I just want you to be ready for that because this is the road that Mark is taking us down and we're going to follow him. But this is the first hint of it. It's about to get a little bit darker. And we hear the third prediction as Jesus says then, verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. What are the details that Mark wants to point out about Jesus' body? Only this, that it's broken and given. More that we need, Mark? Nope, that's all you need from me right now. The body of Jesus is about to be broken and given. He continues. It says, and he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Where is that? That is the language of Exodus 24. Now, Bob thinks it unnecessary that I got him wet with that water, and it probably was. But it was absolutely necessary that the people of God be covered with the blood of of that sacrifice. And it has never failed to be true that the people of God must be covered with the blood of not just a sacrifice, but the sacrifice. Over and over and over, bread would be broken and passed out. Over and over and over, year after year, a lamb would be slaughtered. Mark started the story that way. When the lambs were sacrificed, for Passover, because every year, same as Christmas carols coming right at Thanksgiving, we know exactly the rhythm of this holiday. There were set patterns. There were things to be said. There were psalms to be sung. There were things to be recited. And there was a cup to be drunk. But Jesus has violated the script twice. He's changing the word to the carols. He's violating the traditions and saying, we're not looking anymore at sacrifices of the past. We're not looking to the past anymore. This is new now. And it is new in this way. My body is the new thing to be broken. My blood is the new entity to be poured out. This is now about me. It has always been, you just didn't know. But it is now about me. 
In Exodus 24, broadly we read, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. When your children say to you, me, say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians. An interesting language of Exodus 24. Because one time when God is talking about it, and God is talking to Moses, he says, here's what's going to happen. I will be the destroyer and I will be the protector. I will be the one to strike and I will be the one to save. But when Moses is then describing God's words, he separates the two. Did you hear that? The destroyer will come. And just like a general saying that he defeated an army when he's not the one who killed everybody, he gets the credit for the victory. Jesus, er, sorry, Moses is kind of using the same sort of language. Will God be the one to strike the Egyptians? Yes, but as it's described here, it will be the destroyer who would enter the houses. And what would God do when he saw the blood? He'd get in the way. He would pass over onto that door and say, not here. And stretching himself out before that door with blood on the side of each door, with blood on the top, and with blood that had spilled down to the bottom. It is though we have a portrait of one hanging Blood here, blood here, blood here, blood at the basin. What is going on in this picture? We don't know. Jesus is saying, this has been about me. My body is going to be broken and it's going to be given to you. You need to be so dependent on it the way you're dependent on this bread. Nothing else is available but this for you. And if you want to know how this covenant will be kept, then think back about every covenant. The first one I made with Abraham in the very beginning, whenever I approached him in a dream and said, I want this for you, Abraham. I will be your God. I will be the one to give you people and I will bring them to a place. They will be slaves for a season, but I will punish that people and I will bring them out personally. This covenant that I make with you then is like every other covenant. Because covenants back then were cut, is what they were called. And it's not just sort of that we were writing in deeply into the pavement or, or into the paper or that we were carving it deeply into a stone. That's not the way they're cut. They're cut because a contract would be signed when animals would be split in half. Two halves laid on either side, forming an aisle. And those who entered into the contract would then cut the covenant by cutting through the middle of these two animals, saying this, if 
this covenant be broken. Let this happen to me. And Abraham in his dream prepares, if I'm going to enter into this covenant with God, then I have to be the one to walk through these animals and let it be done to me as if I break this covenant and agreement with you, God. And yet Abraham doesn't walk. In the dream, what happens? The torch representing God, it goes through. It's the torch that makes its way through and says, Abraham, if you don't keep this covenant, let it be done to me. And Jesus says, it's about to be. Every covenant has always been cut. And it will be me who's broken and it will be my blood poured out. This is, verse 24, the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. But then he says this. From now on, we don't look backward. From now on, we look forward. Because this is my last one. And you're going to remember this one until the one day when I come again. That is his third prediction. A day will come, verse 25, when I drink again of the fruit of the vine. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians. What is Jesus doing here? He's changing the carol again. Because at the end of the Passover, there was a saying. It was sort of the, you know, Happy New Year kind of thing or Merry Christmas and Season's Greetings. It was just one of the things you said at the end of the Passover. This year in Jerusalem, next year in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is taking that tradition and he's saying, yeah, there is a year for me. But I'm not celebrating this again until freshly in the kingdom, I drink it with you. And verse 26 begins his fourth prediction. And when they sang this carol, interestingly, the only spot we see Jesus singing right here. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So the same Jesus who said, the room is going to be prepared for you and they find it prepared, is the same Jesus who said, one of you is about to do one of the more dastardly things where it would have been better not to be born than to go through with what he's about to go through. But he's about to go through with it. 
And this is going to lead to my death in such a way that everything you've ever anticipated in the Passover is about to be fulfilled in me, but it's going to cost me everything. The wholeness of my body will be broken. The, the sense of my blood being mine will no longer be the case. For this covenant to actually work, it's going to have to be poured out and splashed on many. And all of you need this. And what do they say? You're a liar. Verse 31 seems almost like a good moment for the disciples, right? No! No, I will not fall away. Peter, adamantly, I will die before denying you. And they all said the same. Key word, all. The essence of Christianity is not declaring your faithfulness to God. That is not the essence of what it is to be a Christian, is to prove to God that you didn't need his sacrifice. The essence of Christianity is accepting what is behind this prediction. That every one of us need what he has just perfected in the Passover. Every one of us need what he has just predicted, that I will die for you. The non-Christian says no. The Christian says yes. At this moment, they are all declaring the heart of a non-Christian. I will never be unfaithful to God and therefore, I don't need your faithfulness to me. I don't need your grace. I don't need your mercy. What is the whole Old Testament law? What are all the feasts? What is everything with the tabernacle? What is everything with the sacrifices? People sin. Here's the remedy. Jesus has said, it's all about me. The temple, you don't need it anymore because I'm here. The Passover, you don't need it anymore because I'm here. And the non-Christian looks at Jesus and says, thank you anyway, I'm good. Aren't you grateful that Jesus predicted that the best of us would fail? Because that means that when the rest of us fail, we have the same solution available to them. Jesus points out that their failing would fulfill prophecy. Not just his, but one coming long before him. Zechariah 13 begins this way. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness, or uncleanness, sorry. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. Zechariah 13 begins that way. My people have desecrated themselves with idols. It has been dreadful. But on that day, I will clean them. On that day, a fountain will be opened and it will cleanse them from their sin and from their uncleanness. This seems like a great passage. How will it happen? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Same chapter. Right after each other. A little bit in there about more stuff that God was going to do, how God was going to continue to purify the land, how he was going to rid the land of false prophets. But to do that, the, the shepherd would be struck. That's the text that Jesus predicts. 
In other words, he's looking at those who would pledge their loyalty to him, almost to the point of saying that he's lying. And would say, it's not just my prediction. This is the fulfillment of a prediction long ago. You will all scatter when I am struck. But you need me to be struck because you've already been scattering. Guys, I don't know what your week is like, but there's a certain sense that from this point on, I want us to follow Peter. Let him be the character in the scene that's in color when everything else is in black and white. Let him be the one that just has the little accent around him. Let's follow what's going on with him. But listen to Michael Card describe what this would be like for Peter. This will be the most difficult day of Peter's life. Repeatedly, he will make what he believes to be the proper assumptions that Jesus, we didn't hear about this, this is from John, should not wash his feet, that he will not fall away, that he will willingly die for Jesus. Each time Jesus will rebuke and correct him, his world will fall to pieces. But Jesus has a better world waiting. Peter's last hope will die, but a better hope will be born. What's Peter's world? Peter is faithful. What's Peter's hope? Peter is true. What's a better world and a better hope? God remains faithful and God will be true. It's a dark story. It doesn't mean there's not little silver linings. So let's just note three before we wrap up. First thing for us to remember is that Jesus foresees every need his people will ever know. We saw that right in the beginning. And despite the dark that we've just walked into, remember that. If you're in the middle of what feels like a dark season, if you're in the middle of what feels like a long hallway and you don't see light, remember this. He's preparing a room for you. And everything you're called to do is going to give you the grace for. He did it for them. He'll do it for us. First point, Jesus foresees every need that his people will ever know. Second thing to remember, though, is that Jesus endured every trial that his people have ever known. Jesus said it this way, and it was a unique point because it was literally what was happening in the moment, but was also something prophetic. He says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, if you know this story, that moment from another gospel, you know that Mark is just brushing past a detail, right? John, at one point, is talking to Jesus at that point. He's like, is it me? What's going on, Jesus? And it's almost at that point where Jesus is kind of identifying, like, see that guy who's got his hand on the dish with me? It's him. Mark's not giving us that. Mark instead gives us in such a way that it has an echo. David one who came and betrayed me, one with whom I have broken bread. Jesus is saying, my people have often walked dark paths. My people have often known betrayal. My people have always known suffering. My people have often known what it's like to have a friend turn, back, turn their back on them and say no more. And the good news of this 
is that Jesus isn't just looking in the past, David and every prophet since who's been rejected. When Jesus came, he endured all of it himself. It wasn't that we just look at the Jesus in the temple and say, oh, he's hated by the crowds. At least he can relate to me in that sense. Because I'm not sure how much we're all hated by the crowds or if we've ever got enough of a crowd around us to hate us. But I think we can all relate to moments like this. Somebody I had as a good friend. They turned. They hurt me. Maybe not in the ultimate sense, but we've all been failed. And what do we need to remember? Even in the midst of this dark story, remember this. Jesus endured every trial that his people have ever known. Here he's looking all the way back at David and saying, I got you. I know what that's like. It's happening to me now. That means that you have a high priest who sympathizes with all of your weakness. There's no moment that I could ever sit down with any of you and say exactly, I know what you're feeling. I try not to claim that when I'm in a conversation with someone. I try to remember to say something more like, that sounds really hard. I'm not sure I've ever endured that. But I can tell you this, one has. Jesus has walked the road you're on and he has endured every trial that his people have ever known. The third thing we need to remember though is this. Jesus then pioneers every trail that his people will one day follow. It's not just that he's done what's happened to us. It's that when he's saying, I want you to follow me into the future, he makes this promise. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's specific to them. It's exactly what's supposed to happen after the resurrection. Where will they meet him? In Galilee. Why? Because he's going before them. But has he made that same promise to us? Absolutely. Everything you need, I've prepared. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my counselor. I'll be your advocate at the Father's right hand, praying for grace and asking you for help so that whatever trail you were walking, you will understand that I have pioneered that trail and I'm not leaving you alone alongside of it. This is the beginning of what's going to be a dark night. But let's not forget that Jesus foresees every need, he endured every trial, and he pioneers every trail. Because that's what shines some light in what's going to be a few dark sermons to come. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that in the midst of tough news, the news for these disciples and news that we endure as well, we have hope, not because of us, but because of Jesus. A Jesus who could see us, see our weakness, and predict our failure And then provide grace for every one of those moments through the sacrifice of his death on the cross. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to take our place with these disciples, declaring our faithfulness and proclaiming our ignorance over our own weakness. May we instead, Lord, confess our sins so that we can find mercy and grace in time of need. We desperately need you, Jesus. And we're grateful that your grace is greater than all of our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together and celebrate grace. Good remember.